Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. Hey, well, welcome to week five in our series that we're doing at the moment uh, out of the book of Revelation. And hey, the book of Revelation is such an interesting book, isn't it? I tend to find that people are either really excited and they want to talk about that book and only that book all of the time, or they don't want to read it at all. And so, you know, is that true? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, what we are working uh, through part of the book, uh, a very specific part of the book. And the book of Revelation, it, I hope Pastor Ruth said this last week, it's got all the answers in the back. The Bible has got, it's like, a, it's like a test, it's got all the answers in the back. So you go to the flick to the back, find the book of Revelation. And if you look at that, it tells you a lot of answers for things that we might have questions about. And so it actually helps to make sense of the entire Bible. Now, I realize that some parts of the book of Revelation are a little bit cryptic and they need to be, I don't know, let's just say decoded or something. You know, we need to try to understand what they're saying. And that is true for parts of the book of Revelation. But at the very beginning, there are seven letters sent to seven real churches. And those letters are not difficult to understand. Jesus dictates and the Apostle John, he writes down everything that Jesus says. And then those letters are sent to those churches. And these are easy. Jesus doesn't mince his words. He knows exactly what he wants to say to his church. That is still true today. What's astonishing to me is that over the last 2,000 years, a lot of the issues that the church was dealing with back then are the same issues that we are still dealing with now. So we don't actually have to ask, what would Jesus say to his church? All we do is we look back, we open the Bible, and we read what he said to them. And if we understand what he said to them, we'll know what he is saying to us. Now, the church has made some mistakes over the last 2,000 years. I think all of us probably, probably would agree with that. And we can go ahead and repeat their mistakes. But if we're really smart, we'll look at what they, mistakes they made. We'll look at what the church did wrong. And then we can correct that so we don't repeat their mistakes. Does that make sense? Amazing. The Bible says, and specifically the book of Revelation says, that if we read the words of this book, that we will be blessed. If we read the words aloud, if we hear them, if we keep them, that we're going to be blessed. And I think a lot of that blessing probably comes out of the fact that we avoid the stuff that the other churches did too. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. And we're, we're after week five, which means we are talking about uh, a church in a place called Sardis. Sardis was one of the greatest, uh, uh, oldest and ancient cities, um, a, a beautiful city. And he writes a letter to them. What's interesting about the letters that Jesus um, dictated and, and they sent to the churches, what's interesting is the arrangement of these letters in the book of Revelation. They seem to indicate that there is a prophetic order in which they are listed. So they seem to speak to different ages in church history over the last 2,000 years. Now, if any of those letters were rearranged, so letter five was where letter three was, then what I just said would not be true. But it seems to be true that they follow a systematic order that is a prophetic overlay of the age of the church. Now, not everyone agrees with that, but if that's true, then Sardis would be the denominational church. So I, I want to tell you a couple of things about Sardis, just so we understand something about the city. It's really interesting. Every time we understand something about the city, we understand a lot more about the church. Something about the city always has something to do with the church. And so Sardis was a city 
that was uh, on a hill that was a thousand feet over the valley below. And because they were a thousand feet high, when it came to them being attacked by invading armies, uh, they felt very comfortable, very confident, very secure. Why? Because of their position. They said, look where we are. Look where they'll have to attack us from. Now those cliffs that the city was on, they were made out of clay, uh, which is okay in the, in the winter, but in the summertime, they would get big cracks and some of those cracks could be exploited and people could actually make their way up. And it actually did happen to this city. In 549 BC, uh, the Persians came and they went to attack the city. And King Cyrus, um, after laying siege to the city for two weeks, they found that this is impenetrable and they just couldn't get, get in. This again gave Sardis this sense of confidence that they shouldn't have. It was a false confidence. And after two weeks of just being unsuccessful, he said to his soldiers, listen, if anybody can find a way to break into that city, I, I'm going to offer a large reward. Well, the soldiers were there and they were looking at, you know, how, how are we going to break into this city? And they were watching the soldiers that were defending the, the, the people inside us. One of the soldiers dropped his helmet. Don't drop your helmet. Big consequences, you know. And it tumbled down the hill. And he watched as this soldier scaled his way down, retrieved his helmet, and he looked at the path that he took back up and he found his way in. He then at nighttime led the entire army, Persian army, up that same path. They came like a thief in the night, broke into the city. Of course, everyone was surprised. Why? Because they felt like no one can attack us. They're confident, they were comfortable. And of course that was exploited. So it did happen. The word Sardis, it's actually a stone. Um, it's, it's a beautiful stone, but it's easily shaped. And you know, I think people can be often like that stone. You know, you know, beautiful, but but easily shaped. We can be shaped by all kinds of things. Uh, we can be shaped by our culture. I went, I went shopping with my daughter Eliana. It was her eighth birthday yesterday, and so we went to the shops and we went into this jewelry shop and. They had a section devoted to 90s jewelry. I didn't even know that that was a thing, but 90s jewelry, um, you know. And so anyway, uh, we, are, we are shaped, even fashion, fashion is shaped by the culture that we find ourselves in. We're always influenced by people that are around us. We can be shaped by situations. We can be shaped by circumstances, shaped by our workplaces. And so we understand something about the law of influence. You know, we are shaped by these things. However, I would say when it comes to our heart, that our heart should be shaped by God. So when it does, I, don't, I don't care how you dress, but when it comes to your heart, your heart should be shaped by God. That actually has a lot to do with this letter to the church in Sardis. So I'm going to read to you out of Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, And to the angel in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. That actually means the Holy Spirit. I thought I'd interpret that part because you're like, Oh, great, here we go. First of all, you told me that it was three. Now it's seven. Like, what is it? You know, like, okay, so it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the seven spirits of God and to the seven stars. The seven stars are the angels. Okay, so by the way, that... That is Jesus's title in this letter. Every letter, he has a different title. In this letter, he's the one who holds seven spirits and seven stars. That is his title. And he starts with this. He says, I know your works. Have you noticed that he says that in every single letter? I know your works. I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. I know what you're not doing. I know your works. It's important for us to understand that as Christian people, we believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. 
Okay, that's, that's how we have a relationship with God. It comes through Jesus. Now, as a result of having that relationship and out of the overflow of our hearts, what do we do? We do works. Those works don't save us. Those works don't get us into heaven. Listen, you will never be good enough to get into heaven. People tried it in the past. It doesn't work. Every other religion except Christianity tries to operate on that basis. We get into heaven based on how good we are. But when it comes to Christianity, we don't. We are saved by the grace of God. It's through everything that Jesus has done. We just accept it and believe it by faith. But as a result of believing it, we have works to show for it. Does that make sense? Okay. So he says, I know your works. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And he's talking about them being spiritually dead, not actually dead. He says, wake up, wake up. Anybody that needs to wake up is evidently asleep. They have to be asleep. This is a church that is asleep. He says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's not encouraging. For I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. I haven't found your works to be complete. It's funny how easy it is for some people to try to reduce Christianity to just their lists of maybe do's or don'ts. You know, when we think about, you know, sin and what it means and, you know, we, you know, when it comes to the issue of sin, what do we do? Well, we avoid it, right? Well, that's the stuff that we, we don't do. So don't do sin. Um, but you cannot be a Christian and reduce Christianity to a list of things that you just avoid in life. You know, as a result of actually being a Christian, you're meant to do something with that life that God has given you. You know that there's a calling on your life. Seriously, read it in the Bible. Read it in Corinthians. Each person should live as they are called. Each one should live as they're called. We all have a calling, a job to do. So we can't exclusively just avoid some things. There's things that we're supposed to do that sometimes we don't do. You know what, guys? That's also a sin. <laughs> yeah, I know, it gets a bit tricky, doesn't it? We call it the sin of omission. So things that you were supposed to do that you didn't do. So you can't just avoid a bunch of stuff in life and then meet Jesus, you know, on Judgment Day and say, I avoided all the bad stuff. He's like, yeah, but... There was a bunch of things that you were supposed to do. Do you know what this world could have looked like? Do you know what this, your family could have looked like? Or your workplace? You know what it could have looked like if you had have done the things that I asked you to do? It's the sin of omission. So we've got jobs to do. We've got things we're supposed to do. Jesus says, your works, they're not complete. You're not doing the right stuff. Verse three, he says, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night just like that Persian army. You think he might've been referencing that? Yep, because they know what it is like to be attacked at night and not be ready for it. And here they are dressing their PJs and suddenly, you know, an invading army is attacking their city. He's just reminding them. Remember how this happened before? It could happen again. He says, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. That's the promise. Every letter has a promise. And that was the promise in this one. And I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The book of life 
is where every single person who has a genuine relationship with God through Jesus, their name is written in that book. And whosoever name is in that book, they go on into eternal life. It's a very big book. It has to be. It would have to be a very big book. So the book of life. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis is a church that looks good on the outside, but it's dead, spiritually speaking. It's dead on the inside. It's like a, it's like a zombie, you know? Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a zombie flick. Don't. Or, or do. I don't want to make any recommendations that could end up in an email. I'm just joking. But if you, watch a, if you watch any kind of zombie movie, right, these things, they're alive because there's movement. They look like, but they're not. They're actually dead. It's the undead, you know, and, and, and they're moving. Jesus is saying there are some churches that are like that. It must be alive. Why? Well, there's activity. There's movement. So it must be alive, right? They, they, they must, the, the church must be spiritually alive. Why? Don't they run a conference? Don't they have an, they've, got, they've got events happening all the time. So that church, surely it's alive. How do we know? Don't they do services? Yeah. Well, if they're doing services, is that alive? Well, there's lots of movement. There's lots of activity, but it still could be spiritually dead. Jesus hated this, didn't he? He absolutely hated this. You remember when he said this to the Pharisees? He called them whitewashed tombs. Do you know what he was saying? He says, you look beautiful on the outside. Oh, you look amazing. It looks beautiful. The church is looking beautiful. You guys, you Pharisees, you, you look beautiful on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. It's all death on the inside. You carry the ministry of death, but you look fantastic when you pray in the streets and when you're looking spiritual, you look fantastic. You just don't really have it where it counts, which is where on the inside. Sometimes churches can look like that, can't they? Have you seen um, uh, the, the Sistine Chapel? You know about the Sistine Chapel? And who was commissioned to paint the roof of the Sistine Chapel? Michelangelo, um, who was in fact a teenage ninja with nunchuck skills. And he could paint, okay? Part of this is not true. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he was, all right, he was just a painter, okay? Just, just so we know. <laughs> he is a painter and he painted the roof. And, and do you know the, the, the one that I'm talking about? Someone with the fingers nearly touching? You know that, you know that painting? It's beautiful. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work of art. And that work of art was commissioned by a Pope, Sixtus the Fourth, in fact, Pope Sixtus commissioned this beautiful work and the church was looking beautiful, right? And you, you could maybe equate that beautiful church and, and the beautiful painting and even the commission of that somehow, you might equate that to the character of Pope Sixtus. Gosh, he must be good. Look what he's doing with the church. It looks beautiful. He, he's commissioned this work. Where things are just going really well, except that Pope Sixtus was also a Pope that decided to commission the idea the people, Christians, could pay money to the church to get souls out of purgatory. That's not very good. That's not Bible. I don't know where he got that. 
You've got to be a bit greedy to do that, I think. I think that's not right. He's the same Pope that used the papacy to, to make sure that his family was well looked after. I mean, his family, were, they were wealthy, they were rich, they were positioned. This is the same Pope that they have very detailed records of his sexual exploits. And I'm telling you right now, he was living so far from what the scriptures say is okay, very far. And you think, that is crazy. Here he is and he's commissioning this work and making the church look beautiful. But in his heart of hearts, who was he? My take, he's a guy that has no faith. He can't have faith. It must be fake, right? How, why, why would I say that his faith is fake? No one, no one who believes Jesus is actually coming back for his bride would live like that. You'd have to think there's got to be some consequences. Sometimes things look alive when they're actually dead. So like a year ago, Sarah and I, we sold our house and we were moving and um, we left some stuff at my parents' house and they were looking after it for, for us. And, uh, you know, my mum is such a beautiful lady, very diligent, wanted to look after the, the plants that we left there for her. And so after about two weeks, she calls me and she said to me, hey, I've been caring for your plants. I've been looking after them. I've been watering these things every day because as it's summertime, as you know, it's quite hot. I said, yeah, mum, I, I knew where this was going. She goes, yeah, well, I just discovered that's a fake pot plant. <laughs> yeah. She has, she has diligently been watering this fake plant, right? It was looking beautiful and luscious and green. You could have left that thing in 40 degree heat in the middle of summer out anywhere in a desert and it's still gonna look luscious and green because it's not even alive. But man, it, it looked nice. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between since something's alive and when something is dead. And sometimes things look alive, but they're not, they're actually dead. Sometimes people, even popes, evidently can have a faith that looks like it's alive, but it can be dead. Man, I, I look at, you know, back in, if you look back through history, when the church married the world, 381 AD, Theodosius, the emperor, uh, he decided that he was going to bring all the pagan culture that was around at the time under the banner of Christianity. And he was going to merge these things together. And that's, by the way, where we adopted things like Christmas and Easter. By the way, we, we celebrate those things today because I believe that they've been redeemed for God. And today when we speak about those things, they point to Jesus. I'm going to take every advantage possible in our culture to point to the person of Jesus. So I believe they have a purpose. But a lot of this stuff comes from pagan origins and, and pagan roots. And they just incorporated into Christian culture. That happened 381 AD and it didn't take long for a series of things to begin to be initiated in the church. Like for example, how about this? 416 AD, the church commissioned that you could baptise infants and it became compulsory. Well, you can't, everybody. It's not a thing. Infant baptism is not a thing. Baptism is the confession of an individual's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the turning from the life that they were living away from that life, confessing Jesus Christ, having accepted Him as their Lord and Saviour and choosing to live a life in devotion to Him and following Him for the rest of your life. Well, how are you going to do that with an infant? And you definitely can't do it on behalf of somebody else. 
And yet here they are just commissioning it and saying, yes, it's compulsory. And everyone, here are people baptizing their, their infants thinking that something is going on. I'm telling you, nothing's going on. About 15 years after that, at the Council of um, Ephesus, they decided that it was good to worship Mary. Worship Mary. Worship Mary. You ask Mary about that, she'd say, don't worship me. She'd say, the person you should be worshipping is Jesus Christ. The person you worship is God. Don't worship me. There's this, there's this background in this history. And then over a series, a number of years, a lot of like practices and things were put in place. And I'm not going to go into all the details. But in 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the doors of the church at Wittenberg. And his point to everyone was, guys, I, I, I see a lot of church culture that's going on, right? We've got to get back to the Bible. We've got to get back to what this says. We've got to get back to the original intention of the church and maybe get away from all of this stuff that's making it hard for people to actually connect with God and have a relationship with God. And after that was birthed what? The Reformation. And when the Reformation happened, it spurned what? A number of, out of that season, out of that point in history, it spurned a number of different what? Denominations. And you look at where we are today and there are so many denominations, right? You, you, you got Reformed, Presbyterian, Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic. I mean, there are so many different denominations these days. And, you know, when I look at all of these things, you know, the, the obvious question to ask, you say, and this, I, I feel for new Christians, some people that are thinking about joining the church, gosh, it's confusing. Which, well, which one do you say that you're all Christian? Which one should I go for? Why do we have different denominations? It's probably easiest to explain it like this. I think that a lot of denominations have the same core beliefs, okay? But each one might have a different expression or maybe they err on the side of an expression that might make it easier to understand. So if you're Pentecostal, which of course we are, what do we err on? Oh, the side of the, the expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're going to lean that direction, right? But not every denomination does. But, but denominations just have a lot of the core beliefs are the same, but you know, some, maybe some of those outer things are a little bit different. I, I sometimes think about it like this. If you imagine concentric circles starting on the outside and moving their way in, you start on the outside with opinions, and then the inner circle would be what? Convictions. And then at the absolute center would be what? Absolutes. Things that we would go to war over. Things that we say, this is so you know, important. We would hold to those things as spiritual truths that are non-negotiable truths. So if we're talking about <laughs> opinions, right? I'll give you a couple of opinions, right? Some people might have an opinion that is actually offensive to wear a hat in church. I don't think so. I don't think it's offensive to God to wear a hat in church. Some of you wearing hats right now, you're thinking, thank God he said that, you know. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think God cares what, what kind of hat you wear. If your head's cold, put on a hat. He doesn't care. But, you know, if I check with my nana, she might say something different. You know why? Because the culture in her day was a little bit different to the culture of my day. And what is a big mistake is when people take culture and they try to imprint it onto the Scriptures and say, oh, that's biblical truth. It's not biblical truth. There's nothing in here about wearing hats. I'll give you another one, right? I, I've heard some people say, well, if you're going to worship God, it really should be done with a hymn. 
out of a book. Really? Oh, that, that, we, we're going to reduce it to that? Like, now, that is an acceptable form of worship, sure, right? But there are plenty of beautiful songs out there. Guys, it doesn't have to be a hymn. We can sing all kinds of song, and worship is actually extends just beyond making you know, tunes and melody. It's the way that you do your work as well. Worship is so much broader than that, but there would be some people in our culture that would have an opinion about that and try to make it biblical doctrine when it's not. I've heard people say to me, right, when you, when you get to the end of the service, one of the things we often do is we give people the opportunity to give their lives to Jesus. It's, it's basically the, one of the most important parts of, of every service. And I've heard people say to me that it's not really a proper, you know, they're not really, it's not really happening unless you get them to get up out of their seat and walk to the front and they have to do it there. If they don't come to the altar, then it didn't really happen, right? I'm like, are you joking me? Are you, are you kidding me? You think that that's what it needs to be for someone to give their life to Jesus? You know, can we just look back through time in history and remember there was a time when they didn't have altars. How were these people getting saved for hundreds of years without an altar? Nobody knows. We're lucky we made it through. Geez, back in the Bible, Paul the Apostle was about to lead an altar call and he suddenly, or a salvation call, and he suddenly realised, guys, we didn't bring the altar. Oh my gosh, just forget, just forget the whole thing. There's no altar. You had one job, everybody, get the altar. How are people going to give their lives to Jesus without an altar? They did it, everyone. They did it. They did it. You don't need an altar to get saved. You can get saved anywhere. It's about the connection that you have with God. I'll give you, so that, that's an opinion. It's just an opinion. Don't tell me it's biblical doctrine when it's not. If we just move one circle smaller, you might have a conviction about something. I personally have a conviction that in the New Testament, it encourages people to give financially. And I believe in New Testament giving. Meanwhile, someone else in a church that's, that's, a, that's a great church is going to say, well, I believe in tithing, right? You might have a different conviction about that. Awesome. Congratulations. Either way, you don't really get away from not giving. That's the only unbiblical thing there is to just get away with doing nothing, right? There are some, we are supposed to be giving. Whether it's New Testament giving or tithing, maybe that's a conviction. Well, let's move one circle smaller, right? What, what if someone said, right, that, that, that there's, uh, God is, is only one God. There's, there's no such thing as the Holy Spirit. Um, it's just an impersonal force. I'm like, are you joking me? That, now now we've got, we got a problem. We believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not just some impersonal force. So there are different uh, convictions and ideas and, and, and thoughts, right? And, and, and I understand how it's confusing, especially for people that are new that are like trying to, figure this whole Christian thing out. I, I did a quick Google search. I don't know how accurate this was, but they had a lot of numbers. It looked pretty, statistically, it looked pretty good, like a well-formed document. They estimated by the year 2025, there should be somewhere around 55,000 denominations. Guys, there are less than 8,000 verses in the New Testament. How are we splitting this 55,000 ways? Like, really? Honestly? Right? And if you look a little bit deeper, one of the things that you see is a lot of these might be just movements that maybe they're different languages and set apart. And a lot of them are going to overlap and believe the same things, but not all of them, not every single one of them. So look, if you were thinking like, I, I, I want to join a church, we're thinking about joining a church. I, I've been giving some thought to becoming a Christian, following Jesus, but what church do I join? Here's a good question to ask yourself. How close is the one you're attending to the one in the book? 
that's a good place to start. How close is the one that you're attending to the, to the one in the book? And when I talk about the one in the book, we're not talking about technology. I realize, of course, you know, we have lights and screens and projectors and all that, that stuff is pretty cool. But guys, we're not talking about technology. We're talking about theology. It's your belief about God. By the way, all of you, even if you're not a Christian, you have a theology. It's, it's, it's what you believe is, is true about God. Some of those theological perspectives might be more informed than others, but everyone has some kind of belief about God. And so when it comes to not technology, but theology, how close is the one that you're attending? How close is that to what is taught in the book? How close is it to the original thing? Let me give you a couple of examples. If you're attending a church and it was entrenched in pagan culture and, and, and pagan origins and they were incorporating that into the church, oh, I wouldn't go to that one. Nah, just stick well clear of that one. Give it a wide berth. If you were attending a church and they said uh, they didn't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time, which is, guys, honestly, it's, it's 101. That is as basic you, you, you go to Bible college, the first thing they teach you is probably going to be that, okay? You've you got to get it. It's foundational, right? And if they say, nah, we don't think so, ooh, I wouldn't go to that one. Well, I'd just stick clear of that. If they said, again, like, well, we don't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's just a force. We, we, we believe in modalism, you know, like, uh, he, he was the Father, then he was the Son, and then he became the Spirit, right? Ooh, I wouldn't do that. Uh, uh, nah. I would not go to that church. I don't think there's much for you there. If somebody told me that there was a, a church and you went to it, they said, hey, listen, everybody, there are multiple paths to salvation. Jesus is just one way. I would not go to that church. I would just stick well clear. And I tell everyone else not to go either. You know, stick well clear of that. If, if somebody had a, a low view of Scripture, if you went to a church that had a low view of Scripture and they're like, oh, you can interpret this thing in many different ways, you know, and it doesn't really matter, right? Geez, I wouldn't go there. I definitely wouldn't go there. And if you found a church that was so liberal and progressive that they allegorized this entire thing so they can lower the standard of Jesus's righteousness to make people feel more comfortable with their daily lives, whoa, geez, I would not go to that church. I would not go to that one. And you know why I wouldn't go? Because that church isn't saving anyone. Worse, they might be making people think that they've got something that they don't. That, that's not actually going to help anyone. You know, when I was a kid, I remember in primary school, uh, I wasn't really an academic. You know, I didn't study hard, you know. And this one term, I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this a red hot go. I'm going to study as hard as I can and see what kind of results I can produce. So I, I, I set myself to the task. It's very hard to turn that off and on when you haven't been paying attention for some time. Anyway, this was my experiment. So the report card comes back in, and this is back in the days where honestly, report cards come like a book now, you know? And they say beautiful things like your child is extending. We don't even know what that means, you know? Like, I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty good. Even the, even the average ones sound really good. It's like, okay, fantastic, you know? What does that mean again? You know, you have to like decipher it. Back in my day, very easy, A, B, C, or D, right? So it's just like, and, and mine, if I, the entire report card fit on one A, five piece of paper and they had to write, you know, 
three little sentences. Mine always said the same thing. Ben would do better if he stopped talking as much, right? <laughs> so, okay, didn't help me in primary school. It's helping me now though. So <laughs> that just came full circle. Anyway, I remember getting my report card and I wanted to open it before mum and dad saw it because I thought, I really gave this a red hot go. I want to I see how well I did. And I opened it up and to be honest, I was absolutely devastated. Because as I started to look through it, right, it was just like I was marked accordingly. Um, D, you know, C. C and, and I worked so hard. I thought that I was getting straight A's. I was absolutely devastated to realise that even when I tried hard, that I was marked down, right? And the reason that I was is because there is such a thing as objective truth. I might feel that my grammar is outstanding, but they're going to mark me accordingly. They're going to say, no, no, you, you actually do need to use punctuation. You know, I, I'm going to get marked accordingly. There is such a thing as objective truth. That's how I was marked on my report card. Sardis is getting a report card from Jesus in this letter. And all they got was Ds, Fs, Fs, right? They're saying, you are failing. There are some, that, a few names that are still holding on, right? But honestly, there is nothing really said positively to these guys. They got a report card and, it was, and they were telling them that they were doing a terrible job. And Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, wake up. You gotta wake up, church. You, you, you gotta stop thinking. This is what he's saying. You gotta stop thinking that just because you say you're a Christian, that that positions you to be safe in life, right? That, that could just be a label. You could, you could just be saying that you're a Christian, but you have no actual connection with Jesus. And that kind of thing, honestly, that's not going to save you. The Scriptures actually say the truth will set you free. That's the only thing that can set you free. free. And that is a Scripture that's been taken way out of context, subtext, Jesus is the truth and He will judge objectively and Jesus is the only one that can set you free. And Jesus is writing to this church and He's saying, you guys are living off the reputation of a movement that was once committed but is now no longer doing that. And He's saying, you think that you're safe like Sardis was up on that hill you know, a thousand feet above the valley. You think that you're safe because of where you're positioned. You've positioned yourself to be a Christian, but you're spiritually dead and it's not going to help you. I'll tell you right now, you can wear any label that you like. You can say that you're Baptist. You could say that you're Pentecostal. You could say anything you like, wear any label you like, but those labels won't actually save you. You could be wearing the label of any of those denominations. And I'm telling you, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. It comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. There are a list of things that, that really won't help you. We, we can be busy with the activity, you know, as long as we're moving, it feels like something could be happening, but actually, Jesus is saying you can have all the movement that you want, but if you're not connected, you're spiritually dead. Serving in church, that, that won't save you, but we would love you to do it. But it won't save you. It won't save you. Attending a small group every week, every single week. You don't even call in sick during August. Uh, that's not going to save you. 
it's not going to help you. Uh, me standing here preaching right now. Oh, that's not going to save me. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff that we can be doing, but none of that stuff is actually going to save us. The only way that you're actually saved from what's coming, because remember, there's something coming, right? The only way that we're saved is if we actually have a relationship with God through Jesus. Listen, you can go to church twice a year at Christmas and at Easter and say, I'm this or I'm that. And you are, you have no connection with God, no relationship with Jesus. And, and by the way, if that's your idea of Christianity, wearing the label and visiting a couple times a year and not having anything else going on in your life, you are spiritually dead right now and you don't even know it. And you think because of the position that you've got, you've positioned yourself to say, I wear this label, that that's gonna say, but it's not. It's just not gonna work. There is some good news after all of this devastating news. Jesus can raise the dead. That, that's how it happens. That's how we get saved. Do you know the scriptures say that you are dead in your trespasses? You're spiritually dead in your sins. And when you say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you, you think it's you initiating it. But it's not. It's Jesus resurrecting you. He does it first spiritually, and then there will come a time where it'll happen literally. He can resurrect the dead. So, you know, maybe today you, you say, I have no connection with God. I have no relationship with God. I'm telling you right now, Jesus can change that in a moment. And it takes a commitment to Him. You say a confession, but that's Him doing His work in, inside of you. So for all of the labels that we could wear that we think are going to help. The only thing that's really going to help is just being resurrected spiritually by Jesus. Now, the person that does that, they, they have a relationship with God. Listen, guys, forget 55,000 denominations. Forget it. It's totally unhelpful. I'll tell you what you need. You need a church that preaches this gospel. You, you need a church that's spiritually alive. You need a church that confesses that only Jesus can save you. And it's that gospel and that gospel alone. And it might sound exclusive and it is, but it's also incredibly inclusive because that offer of salvation is open to every single person who says that they want it. It's exclusively through Him, but inclusive of anyone that wants it. It just takes it that, that commitment. You gotta choose a church that believes that. Choose a church that confesses that that makes disciples after Him. And those who believe that message, those who confess that truth, those who believe that Gospel, you know what? They actually know Him. They have a relationship with Him. They pray to Him. They know Him. 
And not just by association with a movement or a denomination or by showing up a couple of times a year. No, they, they actually know Him. They know who He is. They pray to Him and he, pray, and he speaks back to them. And they are fully devoted to Him. They are fully devoted followers of Jesus and they easily part with their time, their talents, their treasure. Why? Because they care about Him and they actually love Him. And I'm telling you right now, guys, people don't understand why you would give to the church and why you'd give your time and why you'd lay down your talents and bring it as an offering to Him, as worship that's acceptable to Him. They don't get it. They don't get it. You know why? Because they don't know Him and they don't love Him. But those who know Him, they love Him. It's from the inside out and they choose Him in every single situation. And when they are rejected for being associated with Him, they would never separate themselves from Him. And there are countries all around the world and increasingly happening in our culture where people are rejected from even being associated with Him. And despite all of that, they would still choose Him every single time. And the reason that they do that is because they actually love Him. They love Him. And the Bible says those that love Him have their name written in the book of life. That's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. That's what it really means to be a Christian. Fully devoted, completely committed, in perfect relationship with God that comes as a result through Jesus Christ. Why Him? I'll tell you. Every other religion says, I'm going to repeat that. Every other religion says you get close to God by being good. As Christians, we don't believe that at all. We are saved by grace. And as a result of that grace in our life, we have works to show for. We're saved by grace through putting our faith in what Jesus did at the cross. See, the reason that we have to go exclusively through Jesus is He is the only one who has paid the penalty for all of your mistakes. And as a result, stands uniquely in the position to forgive you for what you've done. And no one else does that. Only Him. Just Him. You want to get your name in the book of life? You just believe what I said just then and you confess it. You do that, you live with Him forever. Make sense? Close your eyes for a minute. If you're here today, whether you're in the building today or you're watching online right now, if you have never given your life to Jesus, this is that moment. He stands ready to forgive. The grace of God is ready to be all over you. It's here, it's present right now. You just need to say yes to Jesus and accept everything that I'm talking about by faith. You do that instantly, you're in a relationship with God through Jesus. And if you've never made that decision, right now, this is that moment. If you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus, just raise your hand and say, that's me. You can do it at home. You can do it and you're watching online. You say, I need to give my life to Jesus. And the moment you do that, your sins are forgiven. You come into relationship with God. Your name goes into the book of life. 
If you've never given your life to Jesus, but today you wanna make a decision to do that, raise your hand right now. You can raise your hands at home, wherever you are. Maybe you just wanna put your hand on your heart, depending on where you are. But God knows exactly where you are and He sees where you are today. I wanna pray for everybody that's here. Why don't we pray this prayer together so the people that are saying that, they don't need to say it on their own. Dear Jesus, thank You that You love me, that You died on the cross for my sins. I receive You today as my Lord and Saviour. And I choose to follow You every day for the rest of my life. In Jesus' Name. And everybody said Amen and gave God a shout of praise. Come on, let's praise Him. Let's praise Him. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.